0: Section forty three of The Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Intellect, part seven. Since men are in a transitional condition, since nature ordains that the existence of the race can only be preserved by means of gross appetites inherited from our ancestors, the animals. It is obvious that men should refine themselves so far as they are able. Thus, the brute business of eating and drinking is made in civilized life the opportunity of social intercourse. The family, divided by the duties of the day, then assemble and converse. Men of talent are drawn together and interchange ideas. Many a poem, many an invention, many a great enterprise, has been born at the table loves and friendships have originated there in the same manner the passions are sanctified by marriage blended with the pure affections their coarseness disappears their violence is appeased they become the ministers of conjugal and parental love if we place exceptions aside and look at men in the mass we find that like the animals they are actively employed from morning to night in obtaining food for themselves and for their families. But when they have satisfied their actual wants, they do not, like the animals, rest at their ease. They continue their labor. Let us take the life of an ordinary man. He adopts an occupation at first in order to get his bread, and then that he may marry and have children, and these also he has to feed. But that is not all. He soon desires to rise in his profession, or to acquire such skill in his craft, that he may be praised by his superiors and by his companions. He desires to make money that he may improve his social position. And lastly, he begins to love his occupation for itself, whatever it may be. The poor laborer has this feeling as well as the poet or the artist. When the pleasures of money and fame have been exhausted, when nothing remains on earth that can bribe the mind to turn from its accustomed path, it is labor itself that is the joy, and aged men who have neither desires nor illusions, who are separated from the world and who are drawing near to the grave, who believe that with life all is ended and that for them there is no hereafter, yet continue to work with indefatigable zeal. This noble condition of the mind, which thus makes for itself a heaven upon earth, can be attained by those who have courage and resolution. It is merely the effect of habit. Labor is painful to all at first. But if the student perseveres, he will find it more and more easy, until, at last, he will find it necessary to his life. The toils, which once were so hard to endure, are now sought and cherished for themselves. The mind becomes uneasy when its chains are taken off. The love of esteem is the second stimulant of labor. It follows the period of necessity. It precedes the period of habit. It is founded on that feeling of sympathy which unites the primeval herd and which is necessary to its life. The man who distinguishes himself in battle, the man who brings home a deer or a fish or a store of honey or a bundle of roots is praised by his comrades. So he is encouraged to fresh exertions and so the emulation of others is excited. The actions of savages are entirely directed by the desire to exist, and by the desire to obtain the praises of their fellows. All African travellers have suffered from the rapacity of chiefs, and yet those same chiefs are the most open-handed of men. They plunder and beg from the white man his cloth, in order to give it away, and they give it away in order to obtain praise. A savage gentleman is always surrounded by a host of clients, who come every morning to give him the salutation, who chant his praises and devour him alive. The art of song had its origin in flattery. Mendicant minstrels wander from town to town and from chief to chief, singing the praises of their patrons and satirising those who have not been generous towards them. In Africa, the accusation of parsimony is a more bitter taunt than the accusation of cowardice. Commerce first commenced in necessity. The inland people required salt. The coast people required vegetables to eat with their fish. But soon the desire of esteem induced men to contrive and labour and imperil their lives in order to obtain ornaments or articles of clothing which came from abroad. In Central Africa it is more fashionable to wear a dirty rag of Manchester cloth, such as we use for a duster, than their own beautiful aprons of woven grass. An African chief will often commission a trader to buy him a handsome saddle or some curious article of furniture on condition that he will not supply it to anyone else, just as connoisseurs will pay a higher price for a work of art when the mould has been broken. Both in civilised and in savage life the selfish desires of man are few and are quickly satisfied enormous sums are lavished upon cookery and wines but more from ostentation than from true gourmandery the love of display or the more noble desire to give pleasure to their friends has much to do with the enthusiasm of those who spend fortunes on works of art and objects of virtue and there are few amusements which can be enjoyed alone nihil est homini amicum sine homine amico all the actions of men may therefore be traced First, to the desire of preserving life and continuing their species. Secondly, to the desire of esteem. And thirdly, to the effects of habit. In the religious conduct of man, there is nothing which cannot be thus explained. First, men sacrifice and pray in order to escape sickness and death, or if they are a little more advanced, that they may not be punished in a future state. Secondly, they desire to win the esteem and affections of the gods. They are ambitious of obtaining a heavenly reputation. And lastly, prayer and praise. Discipline and self-denial become habits and give pleasure to the mind. The rough hair-shirt, the hard bed, the cold cell, the meagre food, the long vigil, the midnight prayer are delights to the mind that is inured to suffer and, as other men rejoice that they have found something which can yield them pleasure, so the ascetic rejoices that he has found something which can yield him pain. In the preceding sketch, which is taken from the writings of others, I have told how a hot cloud, vibrating in space, cooled into a sun rotating on its axis, and revolving round a point to us unknown, and how this sun cast off a piece, which went out like a coal that leaps from the fire, and sailed round the sun a cinder wrapped in smoke. And how, as it cooled, strange forces worked within it. Varied phenomena appeared upon its surface. It was covered with a salt sea. The smoke cleared off. The sunlight played upon the water. Gelatinous plants and animals appeared, at first simple in their forms, becoming more complex. AS THE FORCES WHICH ACTED ON THEM INCREASED IN COMPLEXITY, THE EARTH WRINKLED UP, THE MOUNTAINS AND CONTINENTS APPEARED, RAINWATER ASCENDED FROM THE SEA AND DESCENDED FROM THE SKY, LAKES AND RIVERS WERE CREATED, THE LAND WAS COVERED WITH FERNS, AND GIGANTIC MOSSES AND GRASSES TALL AS TREES, ENORMOUS REPTILES CRAWLED UPON THE EARTH, FROGS AS LARGE AS ELEPHANTS WHICH croaked LIKE THUNDER and the air, which was still poisonous and cloudy, was cleared by the plants feeding on the coal gas. The sun shone brightly. Sex was invented. Love was born. Flowers bloomed forth, and birds sang. Mammoths and mastodons reveled upon the infinity of pastures. The world became populous. The struggle for life became severe. Animals congregated together. Male struggled against male for spouses, Herd struggled against herd for subsistence. A nation of apes, possessing peculiar intelligence and sociability, were exposed to peculiar dangers. As a means of resistance, they combined more closely. As they combined more closely, their language was improved. As a means of resistance, they threw missiles with their hands. Thus, using their hands, they walked chiefly with their feet. The apes became almost man, half walking, half crawling through the grim forests, jabbering and gesticulating in an imitative manner, fighting furiously for their females at the rutting season, their matted hair begrimed with dirt and blood, fighting with all nature, even with their own kind, but remaining true to their own herd, using the hand more and more as a weapon and a tool, becoming more and more erect expressing objects by conventional sounds or words, delighting more and more to interchange ideas, sharpening stones and pointing sticks, heading javelins with bone and horn, inventing snares and traps. Then fire was discovered, and, by a series of accidents, its various uses were revealed. The arts of agriculture, domestication, and river navigation were acquired. The tribes, migrating from the forests, were scattered over the world. Their canoes of hollow trees skimmed the tepid waters of the Indian Ocean. Their coracles of skin dashed through the icy waves of the Arctic seas. In valleys between mountains, or in fertile river plains, they nurtured seed-bearing grasses into grain. Over pastoral mountains, or sandy deserts, or broad grassy steppes, they wandered with their flocks and herds. These shepherd tribes poured down on the plains, subdued the inhabitants, and reduced them to serfdom. Thus the nation was established, and consisted at first of two great classes, the rulers and the ruled. The period, thus rapidly described, which begins with the animal globules preying on the plant globules in the primeval sea, and which ends with the conquest by the carnivorous shepherds of the vegetable eaters in the river plains, may be termed the period of war throughout that period mind was developed by necessity the lower animals merely strive to live to procure females and to rear their young it is so ordered by nature that by so striving to live they develop their physical structure they obtain faint glimmerings of reason they think and deliberate they sympathize and love they become man in the same way, the primeval men have no other object than to keep the clan alive. It is so ordered by nature that, in striving to preserve the existence of the clan, they not only acquire the arts of agriculture, domestication and navigation, they not only discover fire and its uses in cooking, in war and in metallurgy, they not only detect the hidden properties of plants and apply them to save their own lives from disease, and to destroy their enemies in battle, they not only learn to manipulate nature, and to distribute water by machinery, but they also, by means of the long life battle, are developed into moral beings. They live according to the golden rule, in order that they may exist. Or in other words, they do exist because they live according to the golden rule. They have within them innate affections, which are as truly weapons as the tiger's teeth and the serpent's fang, which belong, therefore, to the period of war. Their first laws, both social and religious, are enacted only as war measures. The laws relating to marriage and property are intended to increase the fertility and power of the clan. The laws relating to religion are intended to preserve the clan from the fury of the gods, against whom, at an earlier period, they actually went to war. But out of this feeling of sympathy, which arose in necessity, arises a secondary sentiment, the love of esteem, and hence wars, which at first were waged merely in self-defence, or to win food grounds and females necessary for the subsistence and perpetuation of the clan, are now waged for superfluities, power and the love of glory commerce which was founded in necessity is continued for the acquisition of ornaments and luxuries science which at first was a means of life provides wealth and is pursued for fame music and design which were originally instincts of the hand and voice are developed into arts it is therefore natural for man to endeavour to better himself in life that he may obtain the admiration of his comrades he desires to increase his means or to win renown in the professions and the arts. Thus man presses upon man, and the whole mass rises in knowledge, in power, and in wealth. But owing to the division of classes resulting from war, and also from the natural inequality of man, the greater part of the human population could not obey their instinctive aspirations. They were condemned to remain stationary and inert. By means of caste, slavery, the system of privileged classes and monopolies, the people were forbidden to raise themselves in life. They were doomed to die as they were born. But that they might not be altogether without hope, they were taught by their rulers that they would be rewarded with honour and happiness in a future state. The Egyptian feller received the good tidings that there was no caste after death. The Christian serf was consoled with the text that the poor would inherit the kingdom of heaven. This long and gloomy period of the human race may be entitled Religion. History is confined to the upper classes. All the discoveries and inventions and exploits of ancient times are due to the efforts of an aristocracy. Not only the Persians and Hindus, but also the Greeks and the Romans were merely small societies of gentlemen reigning over a multitude of slaves. The virtues of the lower classes were loyalty, piety, OBEDIENCE The third period is that of liberty. It belongs only to Europe and to modern times. A middle class of intelligence and wealth arises between the aristocracy and the plebeians. They contend with the monopolies of caste and birth. They demand power for themselves. They espouse the cause of their poorer brethren. They will not admit that equality in heaven is a valid reason for inequality on earth. They deny that the aristocracy of priests know more of divine matters than other men. They interpret the sacred books for themselves, and translate them into the vulgar tongue. They separate religion from temporal government, and reduce it to a system of metaphysics and morality. It is in this period that we are at present. Loyalty to the king has been transformed into patriotism, and piety, or the worship of God, will give way to the reverence of law and the love of mankind. Thus the mind will be elevated, the affections deepened and enlarged. Morality, ceasing to be entangled with theology, will be applied exclusively to virtue. It is difficult to find a title for the fourth period, as we have as yet no word which expresses, at the same time, the utmost development of mind and the utmost development of morals. I have chosen the word intellect, because by the education of the intellect, the moral sense is of necessity improved. In this last period, the destiny of man will be fulfilled. He was not sent upon the earth to prepare himself for existence in another world. He was sent upon earth that he might beautify it as a dwelling, and subdue it to his use, that he might exalt his intellectual and moral powers until he had attained perfection, and had raised himself to that ideal which he now expresses by the name of god but which however sublime it may appear to our weak and imperfect minds is far below the splendour and majesty of that power by whom the universe was made End of section 43.